Good morning, church. So great to see all of you here. If you've been with us the last uh, three weeks or so, we've been doing what we do every January, which is to take a fresh look at our church vision uh, and what it means for us to be engaged in what God has called us to do together. Our vision as a church is simple. We believe that we're called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ, called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. Uh, That's a pretty big thing. Uh, to renew all things. Um, so this month, we're just taking it one small part of that, which is how we're renewed personally, how men and women, boys and girls are renewed. So we're looking at this issue of how people change. How do people change? So uh, we did, for the first two weeks, we looked at from Colossians 3 about this great, beautiful truth of our union with Jesus, which gives us new life and a new identity. And so that we learn to how to live and practice that new identity. Last week with Justin Early talked about new habits, that we have this gift of being able to practice a different kind of life that can align us with this new identity that we now have in Christ. And then a huge part of this chapter is what Derek will preach on this morning, and that is new community, that God has given us all these new relationships that help us become new and different kinds of people. Also this month, we've been hearing from different stories through our podcast Four different people. We've heard from three different people in our church about how they've experienced personal change. We heard from Mary Damon, Stephen Jenkins, uh, Richard Nance. Um, and this week, our story is from one of our students, one of our high school students, Maggie Cox. She has a really uh, powerful story about how she had a pretty dramatic change. Here she is, here. And uh, I really enjoyed talking with you, Maggie, and um, hope you'll listen to her story this week. But there's, we just want to hear a snippet of her story now about um, how she went from wanting nothing to do with the Lord and with his people, um, and how through a re- retreat, she was drawn, drawn into both. So let's just hear a snippet of that. So then my dad texts um, Rick Hutton, um, my youth pastor, and was like, hey, you know, Maggie kind of wants to go. Is there any chance that she can go? And he was like, yeah, we'd be glad to have her. And I was like, Someone would make exceptions for me. Like, why, why would they do that? Mm. Um, you know, so it, you know, within that one hour, like, my life changed forever. Like, and I had no idea, like, what was about to happen. Um, so that, you know, two days later, that Friday, I walked up to the bus. And I, to this day, have never been so nervous. Like, I, mm. um, I can't even, like, that just thinking about it makes me nervous again. <laughs> um, what do you think you were nervous about? I don't know. I think I was just nervous. I don't know whether I was more nervous to be like ostracized or to be accepted. Hmm. Like, I don't know whether, I think I was at a point in my life where I like genuinely believed there was no acceptance. Hmm. Like that was not going to happen. Everyone was against me and that's just how the world was. Hmm. Um, It was almost like if you were accepted, that would have to alter your entire worldview yeah. in the way that you thought about everything. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Which would be worse than the, you know, horrible way I was living. So somehow. Um, so I ended up rooming with my grade level, um, which once again was the Holy Spirit taking control um, as my small group who have been with me the past like um, five, five years now. Um, ever since I walked through that cabin door. Um, they are like my rock. Um, they immediately befriended me. They showed me what the love of Christ looked like. Um, I kept waiting for the punchline 
where they would make fun of me or be mean or some sort of thing that my, you know, my really good friends at school would all do. Um, and, but they never did. And so like that night I was lying in bed and I remember I'd only been there a few hours, but I was like, what, what is this? You know, Mm. what is this acceptance and love that people share with me? Um, and so that weekend I realized that I, I had found friends. I had a purpose in life was those friends, you know, even though it's not like they were, you know, my immediate best friends, um, well, that's a lot. They were my, they were my immediate best friends. But you know, still, it's not like that was my only purpose in life. But it it kind of sparked like a little something inside of me. Like I I could see the light at the end of the tunnel, kind of thing. Maggie's whole story this week it is it's um, oh, just a little teaser. It includes a pretty crazy story about a surfing accident. Um, so I hope you'll listen. It's pretty great. Let me let me pray as we go to God's Word. Father, we thank you for the ways that you show up in our lives to bring change. Thank you for the way you did that for Maggie and the way that you've done a whole lot of us bringing us out of isolation into community, out of despair, into hope. And we know there are many folks even this morning today who need those things, community, hope. And we pray that um, through the reading and preaching of your Word that we would find encouragement today and not just respond with understanding, but with the whole of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Continuing in Colossians 3, let's hear God's word from verses 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and Admonish one another with all wisdom and through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third, and I want to start this morning by sharing with you a quote uh, from Kurt Vonnegut. It's a quote that has uh, captured my heart and my mind over the years and has stuck with me. He says this, what should people do with their lives today? Many things, obviously, but the most daring thing is to create stable communities in which the terrible disease of loneliness can be cured. He wrote those words in 1981 in a book called Palm Sunday. And according to the Center for Disease Control, Kurt Vonnegut was prophetic and right. Isolation, loneliness is a disease. For the first time ever, American life expectancy has dropped three years in a row. And this trend is driven by a disturbing Uh, kinds of deaths called the death of despair. They're deaths of despair. They're things like um, uh, overdosing from prescription medication on the rise, suicide rates on the rise, alcohol-related deaths such as liver disease continue to grow. It is now true that um, long-term chronic loneliness is just as detrimental to your health as being a smoker. 
in terms of life expectancy. Isn't that crazy? A recent study by AARP said one in three Americans that are 45 years or older are chronically lonely. That's 44 million men and women. And it isn't better if you're younger. In, a, in an age when technology promises that we are more connected to one another than we've ever been, so, social isolation is literally killing us. Community or the lack of it is becoming a matter of life or death. Where does this disease of loneliness come from? Well, let me tell you, in the Christian story, we can say this is not the way it was meant to be. Actually, God's plan has always been to build a community of love in which human beings can flourish and be transformed. This is the reason when you open up the first chapter of the Bible, this is the reason why God even creates humanity, Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 1. We read there that the God of creation is a God who is community. He doesn't like community. He is community itself. And this relational God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creates us, human beings, in his likeness, his own image. And because he exists as community, and we are made like him, we are relational creatures at our core because we're human. It's in our spiritual DNA. And for a short period in the human story, there was a community of love where humans flourished. But that community of love shattered when sin entered the human story. Our way of being human together was marred. Our corporate nature changed. Love gave way to isolation, fear, blame shifting, distrust, envy, murder. So bad, the first family turns against itself when brother kills brother. The human experiment as a community of love was a catastrophic failure. And we need a new community. We need a new way of being human together. And what we're going to discover today as we look at Colossians chapter 3 is that there is good news for us. God has carved out for himself a place where you can belong, where the, the disease of social isolation can be cured, but more than that, where you can become who God's created and longs for you to be, a place where you can be transformed. We're going to see the, the, the transforming power of community in, in three ways. First is through new identity. Now, this is, uh, I'm leaning back a little bit on uh, the text from last week, Genesis 12, uh, I mean, uh, Colossians 12 through 15, where Paul starts talking about community proper. And, and this is what we find there, that, that we need to receive first a new identity from God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, for mere improvement is not redemption. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce an entirely new kind of man and woman, a new kind of human. 
And this is exactly what Paul is saying in Colossians 3, that Jesus has done for us. Our union with Christ does not just give us uh, new identities as individuals. It bestows upon us, corporately, a new communal identity. He says, you are God's people. You are holy. You are dearly loved. Holy there doesn't mean moral perfection. It means set apart. And what are we set apart for? This new identity. It is for belovedness. We are deeply loved. You cannot understate how radical the idea that Paul is putting forward, that there is a new humanity, a new way of being human together. It is possible, and it is only possible in Jesus Christ. We have to receive that identity. We have to start where Paul starts to experience the transforming power of community, and that is to receive our identity as God's beloved community. What can this look like? It can look like a lot of things. I think it, it definitely needs to look like, like this. We, we have to create communities where we are telling the story of our belovedness over and over and over again. Justin mentioned um, last week this bedtime liturgy that I have with my sons. Uh, I've, I've been doing it since they were both in the womb. Um, and uh, it's looked a lot of forms. Recently, it's taken on this uh, uh, last six months, just a small catechism where I'll say to them, hey, hey, Remy, are you a good boy? And he'll say, yes, daddy. I'll say, are you a good boy because you have done good things? Or are you a good boy because you're loved? And he'll say, because I'm loved. My sons have never known a time when they were not declared beloved in my home. God wants that to be true of us. I, I long for that, that, that people could come and be a part of our community and say, since I have been there, I have never known a time when I was not declared beloved. We need to create communities where we are telling the story of our belovedness over and over and over again. We could also commit to a particular expression of beloved community. You're going to see that a little bit later in the service today when some people become covenant members and they are saying, I am giving myself to this new communal identity as God's beloved, the expression of it here at third. And, and, and implied in that, I hope you guys know that this is true. <laughs> implied in that is this, I'm going to stay here. I don't care if the music starts to stink. Sorry, choir. Love y'all. I don't care if the preaching takes a dive in quality like it's doing this morning. I don't care if my kids hate youth group. I don't care. I, I'm embracing this new corporate identity. This is who I am. These are my people. And all my other priorities and relationships are going are gonna to gather around this thing. You, you could also join a parish group. They are built at their core, to be communities where we are committed to relationship with each other. It's a beautiful vision to remind us that church it does not just happen here during this service. Church is happening every moment of every day, and we can live into that together. You might be a part of a church. You could start one. You could lead one. But 
think a response to this movement that Paul is showing us is, is, to, is to tell stories of our belovedness and to commit to expressions of it. We experience and we see the transforming power of community through new identity. We see it also through new relationships. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Now, peace is a, it's a difficult word to unpack biblically because it's so rich and beautiful. Um, it's also difficult to understand if you live in the South, I think, uh, because it could be confused for conflict avoidance, gentle resentment, a lot of different things. Let's talk about what peace is not to Paul here in our text. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is never the absence of conflict. In fact, the peace that the New Testament often describes is peace that only comes through healthy conflict. Peace in the New Testament often, like this passage here, is synonymous with unity. The peace that Paul has in mind here is, a, is the presence of right relationship. Right? The presence of reconciled relationships. And so peace is the presence of harmony. It is the presence of deep soul-to-soul understanding. It is the presence of goodwill in the best sense. He says that peace is to be a ruler over our hearts. A better translation might be arbiter. Peace should be the arbiter of our community. And he says, you belong to one another, so you're called to peace. You're members of one body. You are called to it. Peace, peace is not a choice. Reconciled relationships are not a choice. And peace should have the ultimate authority in our disputes. That's, that's what peace means. It is, it is a pursuit of right relationship. The presence of harmony. Why does this matter so much to God? Why does peace and unity matter so much? This is why. Because he is, because he is community. Because we are made in his image. He has bound his glory to our peace. His glory is at stake in our unity. When we are disunified, what we say to the world is that the, the trinity is at war with itself. Jesus often, over and over again, ties his reputation to the content of the character of our community in unity. John 17 is just one example. He prays to his father, I pray that they might be one as you and I are one. Why? So that the world might know that you sent me and that I love them, that you love them as you love me. God's, God's glory is at stake in our unity. And we have in, in Christ the opportunity for new relationships, not marked by envy and hatred, but by peace and love. There's a practice that uh, Paul really mentions at least three times, a practice that can help this get into, create pathways of peace in us. He mentions three times the idea of gratitude. Thankfulness, he says, gratitude, sing, giving thanks. If we understand that our lives have been redeemed by a grace that cost 
God much, then our response, our primary response to that grace is to be grateful, is gratitude. Karl Barth said, um, grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. I love that. Isn't that beautiful? Christine Paul wrote a great book called Living Into Community. uh, And she says this, when we faithfully remember and recite God's acts of love and care, we relive the experience that, that has shaped our stories and our identity. That's gratitude. It is telling the story of the good things. And it requires attentive Attentiveness, we need to be able to see and capture these moments of beauty and of goodness and of grace at every time we gather together. Every time during a parish group, when you're just meeting with a friend for coffee, start them with a moment of gratitude. Now, the threat, threat to gratitude and a threat to this new life is entitlement. So I want to talk about that for a minute. Now, I understand how entitlement can get itself inside of us. Most of us live in the valley of a communal disappointment. So we're going to show this graph. Uh, a couple of engineers have told us, uh, it, they let us know that the labels are wrong. So <laughs> I am aware. Um, but this is what happens when we get into community. We start these relationships. And what we think is that it's going to be this constant you know, amazing, always upward trajectory of awesome. And then we realize people are people like us. And sometimes you're a part of a community and it feels like maybe it's getting worse than when you feel worse than when you got there. It can take time. You can sit on that flat line for a while, but over time, God does his work in us because God uses people to change people. But in the valley of disappointment, entitlement can breed. Paul Tournier says, no one can bring joy to the one who has a right to everything. It's impossible. In disappointment, we can begin to see our relationships as functional. We think of them as what they can do for us. We become the center. They revolve around me. And ingratitude can breed in that place. And ingratitude is the death of grace. It's the enemy of grace. When we grumble, complain, criticize, judge, we violate one another. The connections, the humanity in one another. There's a a group of monks called the Benedictines. They have had a rule of life, a communal life together for more than 1,500 years. Do you know what they place as the number one threat to community? Grumbling. Isn't that interesting? Kevin Raines puts it this way. How many times have I wished I were somewhere else God was really moving? How many times? This gets a little too close, doesn't it? How many times have I longed for a different kind of worship? How many times have I fantasized about the perfect fellowship where everyone got along in perfect unity? He calls it spiritual pornography. And he's right. The mental fantasy of a perfect people. And he says, it keeps me from being grateful. It's the second way that we experience the power, the transforming power of community is that 
is that it can bring to us new kinds of relationships marked by peace and gratitude. So new identity, new relationships. And the third way we see the transforming power of community is through new life together. He says, Paul, at the end of our passage, let the gospel, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. I love that phrase. Let the gospel dwell richly among you. Paul's doing something here that happens, a number of New New Testament authors do this. They will sometimes describe the gospel as something that is alive, right? That it, it changes us, it does things in us, it dwells with us. At the end of our text today, Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether it be word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus Christ. And he's revealing to us what it means for the gospel to dwell richly. It's that this, that our community, it begins and ends with Jesus. In the middle is also Jesus. It is completely and totally centered upon him. That is what it means for the gospel to dwell richly, that the life and the words and the beauty of Christ reign in us. And when Jesus is center, what happens is this, God uses community to invite us to believe the gospel. And then it works, it changes us more deeply in our attitudes, our motives, our words, and our action. And this is where we discover that according to Paul, community is the context of our change. Because God uses people to change people. Think about that. Most of us fail in the Christian life, not because we have not tried hard. We fail because we have tried alone. We have failed because we have tried. God does not even do this on his own. He exists, Father, Son, and Spirit, mutually loving and serving and caring for each other. There's three ways that Paul unpacks what this means to to have the gospel dwell richly. The first is teaching and wisdom, admonishing and wisdom, and then he talks about uh, singing and spiritual songs. The wisdom, the teaching that Paul's thinking about here is the kind of teaching that produces the life of Jesus in us. It is not simply um, propositional truth. And I think it is important for us to recognize as a Christian community that it is the expectation of Paul that everyone should instruct everyone else, not just pastors, not just paid or salaried staff, not just people that have been to seminary. Everyone should teach and instruct one another in wisdom and everyone should be taught and instructed by one another in wisdom. I think teaching, sometimes, sometimes I feel like, uh, I've only been here for a little bit, I've only been here for a year and a half, but sometimes I think we can be too smart for our own good here at third. Does anybody else feel that way? Sometimes in that space, uh, idols can pop up like intellectualism or formal education. I recognize uh, with multiple degrees, I am a part of the problem. <laughs> I, am, I am a part of the problem. But I was thinking about it this week. I said, if we did a blind applications, um, most of the apostles would not be allowed to teach Sunday school at third, I think. <laughs> most, most of the apostles probably wouldn't cut, make the cut. That's ridiculous. 
There's some good questions for us to consider. Do we spend as much time on embodiment as we do on exegesis? Those are not separated in scripture, being and doing, being and knowing. Do we spend as much time in prayer as we do in our meetings? I love theological education. I teach at a seminary. But we don't need new content, church. We need new life. We need new life. That's teaching that leads to wisdom. Admonishment that leads to wisdom. Admonishment is warning. Warning one another. Wherever you see the word love in the New Testament, not always, but most of the time, you will find words like correct, rebuke, reprove, challenge, admonish. And it is a great reminder to us that even the best of relationships need constant renewal, right? And it's the expectation here that every Christian should be in the business of admonishing one another in love, challenging and warning one another. One of my wife's favorite verses, the wounds of a brother are to be trusted. The wounds of a brother are to be trusted. And when Paul shifts to talk about singing, he's really continuing the same kind of conversation with us. He's saying that in our worship, right, there is absolutely some level where Paul is referencing the fact that there's a transcendent nature of music and music can move us in ways that other things can't. But what he's really saying here is that there is a confessional unity to worship that we need in order to experience new life together. That while we might be divided and working towards peace together, that that when we worship together, we are reminded of our most fundamental reality that, that this new life that we have together is new life with God. And that is the greatest truth about us. And the, the, the new life that, that Paul is talking about here is the very life of Jesus, the life of the gospel alive in the church. There's a practice that can help us with this. That practice is truthfulness. Truth telling and truth receiving. And what Paul's really talking about is radical truthfulness. Sometimes uh, our kids are helpful in this regard. That, you know, my sons are not old enough to know uh, that they shouldn't say certain things. And... Um, and that's sometimes very helpful. A few weeks ago, we were at dinner conversation. Uh, and I'm not sure how we got there, but it got on the topic of spiritual warfare. Um, that is not a common topic at dinner at the Mondu household. Just to let you guys know, when we invite you over, we're not going to talk about Satan. <laughs> though he comes up from time to time. And so I was teaching, uh, I was teaching our kids about this. So they, they wanted to hear about it. And he said, well, you know, the Bible does say that Christian communities have an adversary, an enemy. And what he seeks to do is to destroy the bonds of community between us. And uh, it was really sweet. Remy got up. It's like, you mean like when I punch my brother and give him a hug? I was like, yes, just like that. It is just like that. You're like, that's not God's intent. And then Fisher looks at me and goes, you mean like when you and mommy fight sometimes? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's totally different. Totally different. That is totally different. No, we said, that's not what we said. We said, yes. Yes, exactly. When, when mommy and daddy are angry with each other, 
and we're not moving towards one another in love and truth, that grieves God's heart. Satan is excited because our community is starting to crumble some. The, the practice of truthfulness is, is crucial to being able to experience trans, the transforming power of community. You, you can't experience it without this. And communities that are going to be truth-filled, hear this, church, they, they need to be messy, appropriately messy. Not all mess, sometimes a lot of mess. They have to have rough edges, and they have to be places where members can bear their wounds, um, where people are unwilling to hide their cares, their concerns. A place where someone could say, I need help, and actually receive it. Got to make spaces for awkward confessions, for forgiveness, for healing. And make communities where, where we won't abandon one another when the real stuff comes out. I, I want to I offer a challenge to us as a community it's a, for the next 30 days. We have a grace period. Grace abounds over all of us for the next 30 days. I really want us to try and do some truth-telling, to push and to live in to this practice. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to think now of the person that you know you have been avoiding conflict with. I want you to write, write their name on a piece of paper or on the bulletin that you have. I want you to write it down. If you don't have that out, I want you to fix it in your minds. You know who they are. And I want you to think of a date or write down a date. And what you're saying is, you know what? I am going to, by this day, I'm going to talk to my brother or sister. I'm just going to tell them what I've not told them and what they need to hear. And I'm going to do it in love. I'm going to do it gently. Helps us to begin taking the first steps of becoming a truth-telling community. And I promise you, Jesus will show up. I know some of you are terrified of what I just talked about, but you will experience the power of the risen Christ. He will use you to change someone else. And guess what? You will be changed in the process. And uh, I want to talk for a second just about truth receiving. So if, if people come to, come to tell you truth in the next 30 days, for instance, here's what I, here's what I, want, to, uh, here's what I want you to fix in your hearts. I want you, when that happens, I want you to assume the best. Because it's true. Because here's what's happening, brother, sister. God is trying to speak to you through them. In their voice, you can find the voice of Jesus. And if you're really bold, listen and then ask them for help. How can I not be this way anymore? What can I do? I need help. 30-day grace period for everybody. Get on it. So, I, hope, I hope you take that seriously. Uh, I'm gonna, this last little part, and, and we're, we're going to close. So the, the threat to truth-telling and the threat to new life in, in this is deception. So the practice is truthfulness, but the threat is deception. There's a lot of ways that that looks, but I'm going to talk about one. I'm going to talk about pragmatism. Now, pragmatism breeds dishonesty. 
It leads to deception of others and deception of ourselves. It's what the Bible says. Um, it's when we say peace, peace, but there's really no peace. It's conflict avoidance. And, and at the heart of it is this, at the heart of our pragmatism, the way that it deceives us is that it, it says this, you know what? It, it's too much work to really treat that person like a human being and to speak the truth to them and to bear burdens with them and to love them. So what I'm gonna do instead is I'm just gonna manage and work around them. Listen, listen to this church, the call to truthfulness is not dependent on anyone else's agreeableness to truth. You're just, you're just called to simply speak the truth to them in love. It is completely up to them and Jesus what they do with it. But it does not absolve us of our responsibility to live the new life of truthfulness now. When we do this, we, we hear, I hear things like, you know what, they're, just, they're never gonna change. It's not even worth it. That's just the way that he is. And when we say those things, this is what we say. We're saying that the gospel can't do anything in them. That they are beyond help. And what I would love for us is to believe that no one is beyond redemption. <laughs> or love's power, and that there's no, there's no expiration date on repentance and renewal. I don't want to tolerate each other. I want to love each other. I want us to become, and God wants us to become a community of truth. Th those are the three ways that Paul unpacks for us, three ways that we experience the transforming power of community through new identity, through new relationships, and through new life. I know uh, that we are in a season of isolation that is desperate and it is going to get worse. But I am not without hope, church, because God has made for himself a place where people can belong and can become who they were created to be. His beloved community, a new humanity where the presence of God is embodied, where death and sin do not have to reign anymore. And where people can experience God's kingdom here and now. And it's us, the church. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, hear the praise of grateful hearts. We ask you, God, for the faith to believe and receive our new identities as God's beloved. We ask for poverty of spirit, contriteness. Would you break us, Father, so that we might be able to seek peace with perseverance? And we ask for courage to receive and to speak true things about you and one another and the world and to do so in love. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.